So we are resuming our foundational framework series. So everybody needs three things, right? First, you need your Bible. Everybody have a Bible. Who doesn't have a Bible and would like a Bible? Everybody has a Bible? I walk around in this church, so if I look over and you don't have one, I have no choice but to scream liar and then go on with the sermon. There we go. Now I got people fessing up. I love it. You're probably a visitor. You're looking, will he really do that? Yeah, you better raise your hand. He will. Anybody else? Anybody else? Yes, no. And if you don't have one, you're more than welcome to take it with you. Yes, no, no, no. I've been working on this all week. Okay. You also need your notes. Everybody get a handout? Need your notes. If you notice, since we've taken a break from foundational framework, I have nine and a half pages of notes for you now. Yeah, we're back to that. Yeah, it's good stuff, right? And what else do you need? Your pen. Your pen. And you either have a Grace Bible Church pen, or you have one of those pseudo-Mormon Jehovah Witness pens, I don't know. Does that sting anybody this morning? I love you in Jesus' name, I promise. So here's what's interesting. If I were to have you turn in your Bible right after the book of Malachi, what would you find? You'd find Matthew, would you? Experiment with it. Turn there real quick. Look at the end of Malachi. Zechariah. Do we know our books of the Bible down there at the end? Yeah. Some of us go, it's funny how in your Bible you get into the New Testament and all of a sudden the pages flip real well, don't they? The other ones, it's like, oh, my fingers are flubbing around the Old Testament, right? But we get over here and we turn over and what do you have? I have this. There's a break in between. There's a break in between Malachi and Matthew. Old Testament, New Testament. Why is that? Here's a reason why is because this one page right here can represent from you now, every time that you see it, 400 years of silence. God stopped talking. There's not a prophet to be found. Now, that doesn't mean he stopped moving in history, as we're going to see today. But all of a sudden, God was silent. If we go back through the history of how God moved with people, We find out that he reveals himself plainly and clearly to Adam. He is very pointed. There are really no questions about what he desires. But as sin enters the picture, the relationship with God becomes fractured. Communication becomes confusing sometimes. What did God really mean that? Did he really mean what he said? And then all of a sudden you find that the desires of the heart are as such to where people decide they're going to try to build a tower to make a name for themselves up into the heavens, to become gods of their own. You find that nations begin to form, world superpowers come together. Oppression happens, especially to God's people known as the Jews. God does something miraculous with a man named Abram to where he was working with the entire world, and then he pulls back to work with one person in order to begin a brand new nation that would be his megaphone to the world. 
as they go along, you find that they're not so obedient even though they've got all this information. Information, apart from application, I don't have a shun word that ends with that, but that would be a real good preaching thing, wouldn't it? That'd be like a Tony Evans thing right there. Is bad. Is bad deation. Devastation. Good. I'm glad you ladies came to preach today. Anyway. But when you know the Bible, when you know what God has said, but you don't apply what God has said, you run into trouble. And what we find is, is the Old Testament is a repeated reminder of the hindrances, pitfalls, problems, bondage that you end up in when you leave God's Word on the page. So you have a group that rises up known as the Judges. God allows for His children Israel to be disciplined by being carried off into other places to finally have them come to their senses. And for a judge, not somebody who's coming and going, you're wrong, guilty. No, somebody that comes in and is used by God in order to rescue them and bring them back into their land. Over that time, it gives way to where the people want a king. Do we all remember this? We want a king like the rest of the nations. So God says, Samuel, give it to them. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me as the king over them. And so now you have kings. You have three prominent kings, Saul, David, Solomon. In Solomon's time, wisest man in the world, he is led astray by many women with many gods. In doing so, the kingdom is then split. And you now have a rising up of a prominent office. They were scattered throughout before that, but you now have the rising up of the office of the prophets. And the prophets' whole point is to say, do what God... Sorry. Do what God said. Forgot where the mic was. Do what God said. That's what it is. Now they either have the choice to do what God has commanded and so prosper, or to reject what God has said and suffer the consequences. In this entire time, God has been trying to communicate one grand fact He is the Creator. They are the creatures. And simply by that distinction, every single person is personally responsible and answerable to their maker. He is king. They are not. Or let's put it in Jesus' terms. Apart from him, you can do what? Nothing. That's not how we live, is it? Apart from him, I can do some things. But I guarantee you, unless you have an NIV, it doesn't say that. That's a joke. If you use the NIV, I'm just messing with you. Is this the day it's going to be? None of you went and got coffee, did you? So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Ezekiel 8. Now I have to confess, I lied to you. Last time we did foundational framework, I said this is the end of what we're in the Old Testament. But when I got into the New Testament and was praying through it, the Lord really impressed upon me, you've got to transition this. There's 400 years of silence. We've got, we got to build a bridge and we've got to get from one testament to the other and it's got to make sense. It's like, well, you're God, you're God, so your word makes sense. Let's do that. 
So Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel is a prophet with the rising up of the Babylonians. They came in and began ravaging, if you want to say, Israel and Jerusalem in particular. And there were many different campaigns where Babylon would be taking people away, the first of which was in 605 B.C. And in doing so, one of the first people that would be prominent, we know of, to, to be taken at that time would be Daniel. And we have the entire book of Daniel going on there. But after many sieges, sieges, is that a good word? Sure, yeah, that's a good word. You guys use that word in Wisconsin? Praise God, okay. You use the word sieges all the time in Wisconsin? What are you doing? Going to work. We got a lot of sieges today. <laughs> Where do you work? <laughs> so, you can tell me in private later. Um, but the last, one of the last of which was 597 BC, and this is when Ezekiel was taken into Babylon. Now, Judah, the southern kingdom, was not totally laid to waste, demolished, temple torn down, all kinds of horrible things going on until years later in 586. BC. You're like, why are you giving me all these dates? Well, they're in your notes, but I want to just have you track with me about chronologically where we are. It was in 712 BC that the northern kingdom was captured by Assyria, okay? And and they were wrong from the get-go. Do you remember? Guy came in, built two cows because he didn't want them going back to to the temple to worship he wanted to try to keep all the people and in so he started his own priesthood everybody could sacrifice here and next thing you know that was the sin against the theology of sacred spaces you only worship where god says to worship when you don't there is penalty to pay and so they were quickly removed from the land the southern kingdom especially if you ever get a chance to read about king josiah we're going to talk a little bit about him today they hung on a little bit more because when King Josiah came encounter with the came came encountered with the word of God, it pierced him to the heart and he completely reformed, started reforming all of Judah, tearing down altars, removing false gods, directing everyone to the worship of Yahweh alone. And in doing that, the Lord blessed them with a little bit more to be sustained, but a lot of the damage had already been done. So here's Ezekiel. He's living in this house right outside of, well, in Babylon, but right outside where the main section of worship where King Nebuchadnezzar would be. If you look at chapter 8, it says, verse 1, it came about in the sixth year, on the fifth day of the sixth month. And just real quick, so you know, from the research that I did, I found that was September 17th of 592. That's how accurate they can get with it. So that's when this took place, the 17th day of September, 592 B.C. As I was sitting in my house with the elders of Judah. Now notice that. They're in exile, but the elders are coming to meet with Ezekiel because they recognize that he is a prophet of Yahweh. In fact, they do this not just in 8.1, but also in 14.1, and also in chapter 20, verse 1, constantly seeking counsel. And notice it says here, they were sitting before me that the hand of The Lord God fell on me there. Now, think back to everything that we have done with our foundational framework series. And what is something interesting you see in this verse? God is all capitalized, and Lord is capital L, lowercase o-r-d. 
When you see this, it is Ezekiel referring to Yahweh as Adonai, Yahweh. Now remember, Adonai means master. Yahweh is God's personal name with Israel, and it means the self-existing one. I am who I am. I don't rely on anything else to be. Or if you remember the word that we threw around about that, it's the word aseity. That's the $5 Scrabble word right there. Aseity. It means he relies on nothing to exist. He needs not draw on anything. He needs nothing to be who he is. He is completely self-sufficient apart from anything else. Okay? So that's the whole idea. Notice the reverence that Ezekiel uses in this situation. The hand of Adonai Yahweh fell on me there. Verse 2, Then I looked and behold, a likeness as the appearance of a man. From his loins and downward there was the appearance of fire. And immediately we're all like, man, that's cool, right? Now would be the time to send the kids to children's church because you want them to hear about fire, right? That's great. But notice it says after that, And from his loins and upward the appearance of brightness, like the appearance of glowing metal. Now, I don't care who you are, that's cool. Okay? That's just neat on a bunch of different levels. Has anybody ever read Ezekiel 1? The way that Ezekiel gets a vision of the Lord, the way he travels, the wheel within a wheel with all the eyes, the cherubim that don't need to turn in order to go whichever way they go. And out of all this cool stuff going on, that's still not the coolest thing in the picture. The coolest thing in the picture is the fact that there is a expanse that exists And there is something like a throne with the gleaming figure of who Yahweh is, even though you can't describe what he looks like. It's just bright, bright, more bright, neon, and then bright is what it is. And that's how he travels. Well, this is the same picture we're getting here. It's all consistent within the vision. Yahweh comes to him. And look what happens. He stretched out the form of a hand. Notice that. Which tells me that Ezekiel is struggling to try to describe what's going on. He stretches out the form of a hand, and he caught me by the lock of my hair. Now, this is interesting, and I'm thankful this is the only time this happens in Scripture. We don't know of any other prophet that got yanked up by the hair, right? You ever thought about moving somebody like that? Maybe your husband? Okay, yeah, just making sure. I heard a yeah from a woman, and I said, oh... Okay, so into that conversation, let's move on. So, the lock of the hair, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and brought me, now watch this, in the visions of God. Now this is important. In the visions of God, which means he is seeing a vision and he is transported, but he's not actually leaving the place. And we'll see that in chapter 11, that he didn't actually leave from when the elders of Judah were with him and he was counseling with them. God wants to show him something that's going on. And it says that he went to Jerusalem to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court where the seat of the idol of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy, was located. Now you might say, what in the world does that mean? Hang on, let's keep going a little bit. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there like the appearance which I saw in the plain, which is referring back to chapter 1. Does anybody know what is called the appearance of the glory of God? Do we know? The Shekinah. The Shekinah glory of God. The word Shekinah in Hebrew means to dwell. It is when God's glory is actually dwelling or he is manifesting himself in some way as to be known by the miraculous is the idea. 
So we would also call that a type of theophany. The bush that was burning would be considered a theophany. It's a way that God is revealing himself. When he would lead the people in a fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, we would say whatever brilliance radiated off of that would be considered the Shekinah glory of God because he's dwelling with his people. When we talk about in the midst of the temple and the Holy of Holies, and here is the ark. Everybody seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Harrison Ford, okay. So we got the ark right here and the mercy seat on the top and the cherubim whose wings are there and the presence of God, the Shekinah glory, of God dwelled there in the Holy of Holies above that and that's why the priest had to cleanse himself thoroughly and came in to offer blood for the atonement of the people only one time a year because the presence of God was dwelling in the midst of his people. That's what we're dealing with when we see this idea of the glory of the God of Israel. Verse 5, then he said to me, son of man, raise your eyes now toward the north. So I raised my eyes towards the north And behold, to the north of the altar gate was the idol of jealousy at the entrance. Now, here's what's interesting. The north gate in the temple, and real quick, just so you know, you've seen pictures of the tabernacle. The the temple that Solomon built was actually way bigger than this. In fact, I was able to get a little bit of a picture of it in order to show you guys. It's not really, it doesn't really do it justice here, but it's huge. It's massive. In fact... The inner parts of it, we can't even see here, but as far as the outer courts where the women would be, uh, uh, where the Gentiles could go and they couldn't go any further, that type of thing, it was a massive, alarming, huge structure. It was meant to draw all attention to the fact that Yahweh was the God who dwelt in Israel. So notice, when you would deal with the north gate, the reason... Oh, I lost my place here. Sorry. Well, the reason why you would deal with the north gate is because it was the one that would lead to the altar of sacrifice. So when Ezekiel is commanded to look, he could probably see the altar of sacrifice on the other side, but there is an idol that has been set up in the entrance in order to prevent the way of getting to the altar of sacrifice. Now think about this real quick. That's like you need the peanut butter off that shelf, But somebody decided they were going to park two carts next to it so you couldn't get to the peanut butter. So in order for you to get to it, you must really want peanut butter, right? In order for you to get to it, you've got to somehow get around the carts in order to get there. Do you know that some of you would forget about peanut butter to avoid the carts? Where's he going with this analogy? I don't know. But here's what you need to know. If the idol of jealousy is standing in the doorway and is blocking the way for me to be able to get through, it's because somebody purposely set it there to prevent people from worshiping to Yahweh anymore. They are keeping people from true worship and saying, worship and bow before this instead. And we want it to be so prominent, let's put it right here in the doorway so you can't even get to the other one. Now, the word that is used for this, follow with me. Look at verse 6 here. And he said to me, or I'm sorry, yeah, so I raised my eyes on the north gate. Behold, the north gate, altar gate, uh, was the idol of jealousy at the entrance. Notice verse 6. And he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great, what is the word, church? Abominations. Do we know what the word abomination means? We always talk about this is an abomination. What is it? Hatred would be part of it, but it's got something a little bit more to it. The idea is horrible. If you want the most probably literal plain thing, this is a horrible thing. Or we would probably be more, uh, this is a detestable thing that is sitting here. Here's what God's saying. Ezekiel, 
Do you see how detestable things have come? They're blocking worship to me by putting another idol in its place of which has made me jealous. Now God is a God that is jealous. uh, Exodus chapter 20 verse 5, he says in the Ten Commandments, for he is a jealous God. Now is he jealous like you and me? No, is he jealous like you're real upset about something and then all of a sudden you start sharpening your knife jealous? No, he's not jealous like that. Any of you do that? Me either, we're all saying that's good. (laughs) But he's jealous perfectly. He's jealous perfectly and here's the reason why. Because too often people prefer the lesser over the superior. Too often we settle for much less than what we could have as Yahweh is freely given to us. When we do that, we make a major mistake. God can't help but to be jealous. He knows that He is the best that we could possibly have, and He wants to enjoy a fellowship experience with us because we are abiding by His Word. Now, people can't reflect upon their sins, have a humble heart about there, come and worship Him, or just sacrifice at the altar and give Him praise for who He is because something is in the way. Yeah, everybody has to stop there. They can't go through the entrance anymore. That provokes him to jealousy. Something that has been carved by hand is deemed more significant than the one who made all things. That's abomination number one. Look at verse 7. Then he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. And he said to me, Son of man, now dig through the wall. So I dug through the wall, and behold, an entrance. It's almost like a secret door was found there. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked, there it is again, right? Abominations, notice, that's what you want to mark here. You want to mark where the text is leading us of repetition and highlighting here. The wicked abominations, they are committing here. So I entered and looked and behold, every form of creeping things and beasts and detestable things with all the idols of the house of Israel, now watch this, were what? Were carved on the wall, all around. Does anybody know what was on the wall in the temple? What did they coat it with? Gold. Wait a second. That means that the idolatry had gotten so bad that they're not only bringing their idols into the temple, and we'll set this one up here, and this one up here, and this one up, and this one up, and this one up, inside the temple, but they've they've already taken the time to chisel images on the wall out of the gold. Now look what it says. Every form of creeping things, and beasts, and detestable things, with all idols of the house of Israel. Let me ask you, what are creeping things and beasts? Bugs, spiders, what else? Snakes? Does anybody want to guess that there's probably a cow in there somewhere? For some reason, Israel can't get away from cows. (laughs) Somehow I knew. I'm going to rename you Tom. You're off the hook today, brother. (laughs) Tom just got saved. That's great. Yes, but think about it. How far gone do you have to be to walk into the house of God? And Because we see this like, we went miniature golfing at the Dells last night. They have no problem writing stuff on the walls there, right? 
In fact, I got a few phone numbers of people. We probably need to call them and witness to them, right? Probably. <laughs> what about coming in here? If I gave everybody a Sharpie, would you walk over to the wall and want to, hey man, let's make a cow. What are we going to worship today? I really like strawberries. Let's make a strawberry. Why not? It's going to get the same job done as a cow. It does nothing but it pleases me, has no power whatsoever. I can manipulate it however I want to, and I don't have to be convicted about how wrong I am because I'm not dealing with truth. Everybody see why that's an abomination? How about this? Verse 11, standing in front of them were 70 elders of the house of Israel. 70 elders. Elders are what? Leaders. Leaders. And when leaders have gone astray, the people go astray. Leaders are called for one thing. What is that? To lead. That's what they do. And when they lead in a wrong direction, they lead people in a wrong direction. There's 70 of them. Now remember, this vision has taken him back to Jerusalem. Chances are, this is what is going on in real time while Ezekiel and the elders of Judah are there and they're seeking counsel from him. But this is what's going on there currently. If you need a reason why the people have been exiled, this is it, Ezekiel. Look at it. We've got 70 of the elders who are bowed around worshiping this. But here's the crazy part. You would read this, you might be like, oh, what does that matter? With Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them, each man with his censer in his hand, an instrument used for worship, and the fragrance of the cloud of incense rising. In other words, a way that they would worship Yahweh, they're now worshiping all of these created things. Why do we have such a tendency to worship created things instead of the creator of things? Isn't that the problem? Because we can see it, because we can touch it, because it's more tangible. There's not much more tangible than words written on a page. To know him. Does it require faith? Doesn't he tell them in Deuteronomy, remember when you heard the voice from the top of the mountain, you did not see a form, remember that. Everybody in the Deuteronomy class, if you're in the Deuteronomy class in the, in the fall and winter, raise your hand. Okay, you should know that, you should have raised your hand. First John one night for next week, write it down, okay? You should have known that. He said to them, you did not see a form, you heard a voice. Why is that? Because he's trying to direct the focus of worship on his word, not on an image. Not on an image. He is trying to get people away from that idea. Now, who is Jazaniah? Jazaniah is the son of Shaphan. Shaphan is the guy who was rummaging around in the temple. And I wrote it down here because I couldn't remember it. 2 Kings chapter 22, when King Josiah became the king. And what happened as they were rummaging around is they found the Torah. They found the first five books, the law of God. And he brings them to Josiah, and he lays it out, and he reads it to Josiah. And Josiah is so struck because he sees the current spiritual climate of where Israel is, where Judah is, and he sees what God expects in order to be able to have fellowship and intimacy with them, and he immediately starts incredible reforms throughout the entire region. Destroying everything that is false, turning everybody back to Yahweh. If we're going to do it, we're going to do it right. It's God's word. This is what he said. Let's follow it. He was the last bright hope that that southern region of Judah had. After that, all downhill. Now notice that guy who found it, 
and who went along with it. And Jazaniah would have grown up with that influence around him of how Josiah would have turned everything in that direction. Even he is capitulated to leading 70 elders of Israel into pagan worship. It says here, verse 12, Then he said to me, Son of man, do you see what the elders of the, uh, elders of the house of Israel are committing? Now notice this, in the dark. Why in the dark? Because what? Because their deeds are evil? What else? Because we prefer darkness rather than light. Because we don't tell people about our sins because they're wrong and we know it. And we hide it. So unless we've got mass acceptance that we've had to drum up in some way, we won't tell anybody about what's really wrong or what we've really done. In fact, doesn't Jesus say or doesn't John say at the end of chapter 3, they do those deeds, they, they hide them in the dark so they can't be seen, but whoever does what is right doesn't mind it's out in the light. That's not a problem. Why not let everybody know? If it's something that glorifies God, why would we not want everyone to see it? Notice, now we're going to do this in the dark. I mean, wasn't there a hole in the wall that Ezekiel had to dig through the hole and then he had to find a door and then he had to get on the other side of the door to see what was going on? Now here's the amazing thing. When they're involved in idol worship, what did they forget about God? He can see everything. He is omnipresent. And when we get caught up in the sin of this world, the very first thing that we forget are the attributes of God. He'll never see. He doesn't know. He doesn't care. In fact, look what they say after this. He says here, Do you see, son of man, what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark, each man in the room of his carved images? For they say, notice, here's the attitude of their heart. They say, Yahweh does not see us. Yahweh has forsaken the land. Is that true? Oh, remember, all sin starts with wrong thinking about God. Here's their conclusion. Let's do what we want. God doesn't care about us. God doesn't love us. Is that true? No. Who's asleep? Raise your hand. Okay. So notice it says here, verse 13, And he said to me, Yet you will see still greater abominations which they are committing. Abomination number three, verse 14. Then he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house that was towards the north. Now this gate is interesting because this is the gate anytime that worship was going on in the temple and the king attended the worship, this was the gate that the king would go through. Which should, which should put that in your mind and, and hold on to it. And notice what it says here. Uh, let's see. And behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. And you say, so what? Tammuz was a Babylonian god, the god of vegetation. And it was actually believed that when the winter time came along, that Tammuz was dying, but then when springtime came up, he was resurrecting from the dead. And any time that there was a harvest time, harvest of grapes going on or something like that, they would attribute it to him. And you say, well, why are they worshiping him? Here's the amazing thing. This is the only time... His name is mentioned in all of Scripture. But you know what's crazy? When the children of Israel came out of exile, their Hebrew calendar was different, so much so that the months between June and July were renamed Tammuz. Now tell me that this did not, this idolatry did not have some kind of influence on them to where the fact that they changed their calendar. Anybody want to change their calendar to June to Coles lately? I mean, anybody want to do that? You see how far gone that is. You see how entrenched that has to be in your system to get together a consensus of, let's change our calendar to this name. 
Because it's during this harvest time. And this is the God of vegetation. And so therefore we do that. Does anybody remember that God was declared by Abraham when it came time to sacrifice Isaac? Jehovah Jireh? Anybody remember that? The Lord is my provider? Everybody remember that? What does it say about renaming your calendar when God is the one who gives you everything? Everybody see how far gone they are. Everybody getting this? We're, we're, we're leading somewhere, okay? Okay, if you're going to nod out, go get some coffee. Okay. So, I'm really trying to sell this coffee, you guys. Verse 15, he said to me, Do you see this son of man? Yet you will see even greater abominations than these. The last one, starting in verse 16. Then he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the entrance to the temple of Yahweh between the porch and the altar. Now let's show this. This is an over this is an overview if you were to look down on what Solomon's temple looked like at this time. We're, hold on just a second. Do I have it? Do I have it? Do I have I do have it. And so right there. Right there, here's the porch, here are the steps leading up, two pillars there. This is the altar. Remember, the temple was much bigger, still similar design and how it was set up, but much bigger situation when the temple is actually built. So we're talking about this location right there. Look what he says. Verse 16, between the porch and the altar were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of Yahweh and their faces toward the east. And they were prostrating themselves eastward toward the sun. Now does this give you an image if anything does? My back is to the temple. My face is bowed down, prostrate, down on the ground, nose to the ground, worshiping towards the sun. Where did they get that from? Who worshiped the sun? Egypt. What's the God's name that we went over? Remember, God made it dark for three days. No one could move. Ra. So they bow down to this false god with their backs. Now here's the thing, 25 elders, why is that? 24 of them were priests according to their courses of how they were set out in Jewish society, but also you had the high priest making priest number 25, the priesthood, the spiritual intercessors between the people and Yahweh who made sacrifices and were set aside wholly devoted with Yahweh as their inheritance had all become corrupt. They're all now worshiping the Son rather than the Creator. He says here, verse 17, He said to me, Do you see this, Son of Man? It is too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations uh, which they have committed. In other words, it's too easy for them. They're devoid of their conscience is the idea. That they have filled the land with violence and provoked me repeatedly. For behold, they are putting the twig to their nose. Therefore, I indeed will deal in, what's the word, church? Wrath. My eye will have no pity, nor will I spare. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not listen to them. Now here's what I'm going to ask you to do, because I wanted to go through it because of time I'm not going to. Read chapter 9 and understand what it looks like, the outpouring of his wrath, when you get an opportunity. But I do want to show you something interesting. Look at chapter 9, verse 3, real quick. Here it is. Then the market glory of the God of Israel, the Shekinah glory, went up, from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple. Stop there. He moved from the cherub of which he had been. Where did the Shekinah glory of God dwell? 
over the ark. And on top of the ark is the mercy seat. And it's all crafted out of one piece. And you've seen, you've seen Harrison Ford, right? And the whole deal, right? Okay, pretty good representation. Their wings come together at this top, and they are cherubs. And he is positioned above that, but notice God has moved. God has moved from above the cherub there to the threshold. The threshold is the doorstep, which on that map, could you bring it back up if you don't mind, Mitch? Is right there. God has moved from here to here. Turn over to chapter 10. Look at verse 1. Then I looked and behold, in the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, something like a sapphire stone in appearance resembling a throne appearing above them. Now this is talking about how God moves the same vision that we see in in Ezekiel 1. We didn't have time to read it today because it's the whole chapter and it's mind-blowing. We just need to pray and go home or repent. Something crazy is going on there. It's amazing. But notice, in that expanse, the cherubim they're talking about there, the cherubim that follow him. Now watch this. And he spoke to the man clothed in linen and said, Enter between the whirling wheels under the cherubim and fill your hands with coals of fire from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he entered in my sight. Now pay attention. Now the cherubim were standing on the right side of the temple when the man entered and the cloud filled the inner court. Bring it back up, Mitch. Sorry, ma'am. Bring it back up the overhead design. Okay, I love you. I ask a lot of him, and he does an impeccable job, so forgive me. Yeah, amen, you do ask a lot of him. (laughs) So let's read verse 4 real quick. Then the glory of the Lord, there it is again, cloud filled the inner court, the glory of the Lord, went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple, and the temple was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. He has moved from here to here. To here. Does everybody see that? God is moving here. Now, let me make sure I'm not in the wrong spot. I'm telling you guys, I did a ton of study this week. Hopefully you can tell by the notes. Everybody look over at 11. Chapter 11. Look at verse 12. Because this sums it up. He says, thus you will know that I am Yahweh. Does everybody remember when we saw that repeatedly in Exodus? You will know. They will know. Finally, they'll get it is the idea. They will know that I am Yahweh. And look, here's the summation of it. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor have you executed my ordinances, but have acted according to the ordinances of the nations around you. Right? Give us a king like all the rest of the nations. And what happened from that? They begin to act like all the rest of the nations. In other words, they have violated the covenant that was made with them on Mount Sinai. If you will obey me and worship me and honor me, I will be your God. I will protect you. I will provide for you. The whole deal, they've broken it. They've broken fellowship with Yahweh in an extreme way. Watch what happens next. Go down to verse 22. Then the cherubim, the cherubim that are under the presence of God, lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which is east of the city. There is not a place for me to put a dot on the map now. 
Because God has moved from the Holy of Holies to the doorstep, from the doorstep to the court, from the court out of the city and up on the mountain that is east. And back then when they say mountain, it's more like a hill. But does anybody know what, the, what is to the east of Jerusalem? Anybody know? Anybody know that didn't read Ryrie's notes at the bottom of their Bible? It's the Mount of Olives is what it is. Now notice this. He says, the mountain which is to the east of the city, right Mount of Olives in there if you want, and the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God to the exiles in Chaldea to the Babylonians. So the vision that I had seen left me. The vision is over at that moment. Does anybody realize what just happened at this point in history? God's presence is left. Everybody think, ladies and gentlemen, Elvis has left the building. We think about that, right? Well, this is way bigger. Yahweh has left. God is gone. The sin was so bad that Yahweh said enough. There are two types of judgment in Scripture. There's an active judgment. We're all familiar with that, right? Pharaoh and his riders are coming through. God tells Moses, lift up your hands, close in the waters, actively destroying the Egyptians at that time. But there's also a passive wrath of God where God just steps back and lets people do whatever they want to do. In fact, that's exactly what goes on in Romans chapter 1. And God gave them up, and God gave them up, and God gave them up. Does everybody see that? Imagine God just moving his hand back a little bit each time. God's chosen people, set aside for his glory, receiving more revelation than anyone has ever received, personally walking with him, privy to all these means of what it is to worship Him and to please Him, and great promises that have never failed, that have an impeccable track record, had so turned their back on Him that God said, fine. I'm out. And then you have that page in between your testaments. 400 years. No revelation. No word from the Lord. No, God, what do you want to happen here? He's not talking. Does everybody remember when Abram committed the sin and Ishmael was conceived? He was 86 years old. In the very next verse, you have a very interesting point that's made. Now when Abram was 99 years old, this isn't the first time that God stepped away from a situation and said, fine, do it your way. 13 years he didn't talk to Abram anymore. This is 400. What happened in this time? Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Take your notes. If you search your notes down through here, you'll actually see Ezekiel 21. We didn't cover that necessarily right now. We're, we're going to before we get through because I want to connect it to what we're looking at next. But you'll see a line there. Go through till you find Ezekiel 21. You'll see a line there. And after that, I've got some information, very brief, about what happened during that history of 400 years. 
uh, if you turn over after that page, there's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was taken in 721. The southern kingdom was first ransacked in 605, and eventually everything came tumbling down, the temple and everything, 586 B.C., now, you're familiar with this if you've done any sort of study of Daniel and you understand King Nebuchadnezzar's dream where there's the statue, the head made of gold, and those types of things. You have Babylon as the reigning superpower. In fact, they were so strong that in 612, they went over and conquered Assyria who took the people from the north. They were dominating everything at that time. Mitch, do we have the map on the Babylonian Empire? This, this is everything that they see. Now, I know it's kind of hard. This is everything that they controlled. I know it's kind of hard to see. Uh, just because some of it's washed out, but this is a little bit more green. Everybody see that sickly color? That's just how sick it was right there. But notice, all this right here, all this green stuff right here was controlled by Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar was the king. A couple of generations after that, it comes tumbling down. And the way that it did was interesting is, Babylon was completely covered with gold. You could see the place from three miles away if the sun was shining. It was amazing how it just gleamed. The problem was everybody inside was starving to death. And so unbeknownst one night when King Belshazzar, which was actually the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar, who we read about in Scripture, was having a party, and everybody remembers the writing on the wall, you've, you've been weighed and found wanting. At that time, the Medes and the Persians had been digging a trench next to the river of water that ran underneath the wall in Babylon in order to supply water for the people. And when they let it go, that water backed up so that the level dropped and they were able to come in underneath the wall because otherwise it was impenetrable. They didn't just build their walls high, they built them thick. And I'm talking like lots of feet thick, like 30 feet thick walls. That way if you got to the top, they could still pick you off when you were up there. So in doing that, they then take over and conquer the whole thing. So now the Persians become the dominant power. We have a map of that, of what they conquered at that time. That's a little bit better. And, and up here with this map, I mean, it's not in your handout, but if you could see it, it actually shows how in increments they were able to go through and they were able to conquer a little bit more. And at this time, Artaxerxes was sent back to build the walls in Jerusalem. But that's about what they captured. If you're just curious, Jerusalem is right there. So it's, notice a large part. Notice everybody avoids the desert. Ain't nothing good out there, right? So notice, they get all this. Then after that, Probably a, a time period that we might be a little bit more familiar with is that of Greece, rising up of Greece, and Alexander the Great. And with him, he brought in what was known as Hellenism, a Hellenistic culture. It was this entire uh, observance of the physique of the human body. It was really self-centered worship was the idea. And at 26 years old, he had conquered all of this stuff right here. He had conquered all of it. Problem is, at 26, he died from, I think it was an STD, actually, is how he died. And in dying, he had four generals that operated under him, of which the provinces were divided. Well, it didn't take long for two generals to get smart on the other two and overthrow them. And so you had two groups. You had one group that operated down in here. This group down here was known as the Ptolemies. You had another group that operated over here, and those were known as the Seleucids, okay? Now, all of those names in place, whatever it is, the Ptolemies were very interesting because they had control of Jerusalem and that southern Judah region at this time. Everybody glad you came to history class today? You're like, man, I'm getting saved, prayed in revival, right? Everybody needs glory fans from the charismatic church right now. But when we're looking at this, what was great about the Ptolemies over here was they still let Jerusalem and Judah kind of do their thing. It was this group over here that had totally bought into the Hellenism, which eventually took over this entire 
uh, entire region. And when they came over, they battled against them and took possession of this area. Well, now you have enforced Hellenism. And one of the first things you've got to do is you have got to get rid of the God of the Jews. You've got to deal with him. And so you have a man named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Try saying that five times fast. He came in and he is known as a ruthless dictator. So much so that he sacrificed a pig in the temple at that time. It's the second building of the temple. Zerubbabel's temple is what it's known as. He sacrificed a pig at the time, mixed the flesh that he had chopped up with all kinds of crazy stuff, and then he just smeared it all over the walls of the temple and then turned around and took the blood of the pigs and made all the priests drink it. That's how evil he was. In fact, it was estimated that in three days' time, Antiochus and his army killed 40,000 people. God's not talking. Israel's getting what they deserve. Then you have him do something. Finally, God, where were you? Where were you when all this was going on? Well, he's not silent. Really. He rises up a man. Judas Maccabees. Anybody heard of Maccabees? And you're going to have a baby. Maccabees, throw that in there somewhere. Get it in the name. And the reason is, is because it means the hammer of God. Now, I can't think of anything cooler than the hammer of God. Right? You almost picture like, boom! I love it. In fact, I want to, I want to read to you the story out of your notes because it's told much better than I can come up with it. Turn over a little bit. If you look down at the bottom of your page, you're going to see a a footnote for H.A. Ironside, The 400 Silent Years. If you ever want to know all about this period, get this book. You can probably find it pretty cheap used somewhere, Amazon or something like that. The 400 Silent Years, it gives you all kinds of crazy details. But I want to show you the very middle section. What was interesting about uh, the Maccabees was the dad of the Maccabees, Mattathias, was a priest unto God, unto Yahweh. And he and his family were completely sold out to Yahweh. And so King Antiochus, wanting to enforce his reign, had to start getting it into the hearts of people that they need to be worshiping something other than Yahweh. So, an incident occurs. There came one day to Modin, that was a place where they lived, Apelius, I guess, King Antiochus's commissioner to force all the inhabitants to conform to the heathen rites. Recognizing in Mattathias a ruler and an honorable man, Apelles came first to him, demanding that he set the example by sacrificing on the heathen altar which had been set up in the midst of the village. Mattathias indignantly refused and declared without reservation that neither he nor his sons would hearken to the king's words. As he spoke, a renegade Jew pressed through the throng to offer before the idol. In other words, the guy comes and says, you have to sacrifice on this heathen altar because of your prominence in this community in order to set the tone for everybody else that they need to follow you. Why? Because leaders lead, people follow. Notice that. He says, I'm not going to do it. My sons aren't going to do it. We're not denying Yahweh. So some guy decides, well, I'll do it. So he presses through and he goes to sacrifice. And look what it says here. This so stirred the venerable old man that he ran forward and slew, slew, killed 
is the idea. Not only the transgressor himself, but ere the astonished commissioner realized his danger, he also was slain by Mattathias, who then destroyed the altar. Thus had a second Phineas arisen in Israel. The breach was made. The king was openly defied. In other words, it was somebody who actually was standing upon the conviction of God's word and said, wait a second, it makes no sense to worship to anybody else or to sacrifice to anybody else because there's only one God and his name is Yahweh, so we're not doing it. So when somebody decided that they were going to capitulate, Mattathias got so worked up, he killed the guy who was going to sacrifice and then he killed the guy that was sent to tell him to sacrifice and then he took that altar and brought it down to the ground. He was a righteous dude. I think that's in the Hebrew somewhere in something. We'll go with it. After that, God gave amazing blessing to Mattathias' son, Judas. He had victory over victory over victory of armies that were ten times the size of the band that he had put together to be faithful to God. Eventually, when Antiochus died, and it's interesting, Antiochus died by a flesh-eating disease. Sounds about right, doesn't it? In doing so, Mattathias, or sorry, Judas was able to cleanse the temple from all of what he had done to desecrate it, and now that is observed by Hanukkah. Put on your yarmulke. It's time for Hanukkah. Anybody? Okay, come on. Moving on. Now, here's the amazing thing. They actually experienced some independence. The Jews did at that time. But now you had Hebraic Jews and you had Hellenistic Jews because Hellenism had so influenced everything. In fact, that comes from Koine Greek, what the New Testament is written in, a common man's Greek. It's the influence of Hellenism, even though there's a Roman culture. They started having some fights, Hebraic Jews, Hellenistic Jews, and it ended up being such an uproar that it caught the attention of a rising superpower named Rome. Rome came in, dominated the area, took control. And even though they were still free to do some worship, they now had a different form of oppression coming on, just as God had shown Daniel in the prophecy he had given to him. Now, everybody take your Bibles and look at Ezekiel 21. We're going somewhere. Don't think that we're not. Ezekiel 21, look at 24. Therefore thus says Adonai Yahweh, because you have made your iniquity to be remembered. And this Hebrew word here is that it's named, that it's recognized, that it's public knowledge. He says here, and that your transgressions are uncovered, so that in all your deeds your sins appear, because you have come to remembrance you will be seized with the hand. O you, sorry, and you, O slain wicked one, the prince of Israel, that's King Zedekiah, you can read about later, whose days has come in the time of the punishment of the end. Thus says Adonai Yahweh, remove the turban and take off the crown. This will no longer be the same. Exalt that which is low, abase that which is high. A ruin, a ruin, a ruin, I will make it. This also will be no more Now watch this. It will be no more. Take off the turban and crown. It will be no more until he comes whose right it is and I will give it to him. Somebody said Jesus. It's almost like you can't help it, can you? 
Turn over to the Gospel of John. Here's where we'll finish. I know everybody's getting antsy. We're actually much more on time than what you think. Don't look at the clock. John chapter 1. I only want to look at one verse. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and... What's the word? Dwelt. Tabernacled is the idea. Set up shop. Decided that they were going to reside here is the idea. Made the decision to place residence here and the word became flesh incarnation and dwelt among us now watch this and we saw his what hold on now who did we just see leave some 500 and something years before the shekinah glory but notice that john is very specific about how he wants to point this out We're going to look at this more in detail next week. But we know that the Word is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. He comes and He sets up shop, being born into this world here. But John can't stop there at the skin. He's got to get underneath it. And he's saying, guys, do you realize we saw His glory? Didn't he see His glory? Peter, James, John on the Mount of Transfiguration. All of a sudden, Jesus was changed before their eyes and Peter didn't know what to do. He wanted to start building houses. He's freaking out. The other two were silent, smart guys, right? But we saw His glory. Glory of what? The only begotten, the unique Son of the Father. In what? Grace and truth. Now stop for a second. This is the same glory that appeared in the garden. This is the same glory that came down to see what people were doing in building a tower. This is the same glory that called out to Abram to leave everything. This is the same glory that appeared to Abram before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the same glory that positioned himself in a bush that burned but would not be consumed in order to call out to Moses to go and lead out his people. This is the same glory that led those people day and night. This is the same glory that appeared to the elders of Israel as they dined with him after the giving of the Ten Commandments. This is the same glory that resided within the tabernacle every time they set it up and he waited there. It's the same glory that changed the face of Moses, that he had to cover it up with a veil. It's the same glory that dwelt above the Ark of the Covenant, above the cherubim, where you had to be washed and cleansed and bring the right type of blood in the right type of way. Only one time a year were you allowed to go to atone for sin in order to see it. It's the same glory that when it saw the sin had become exceedingly great, left. Israel was due for a reintroduction to God. And in a way they'd never seen it before. Which we would be thinking fireworks and stuff's going crazy and things are falling down and oh my gosh, it's like an apocalypse. 
going on? No, he came from probably the stature of a five-foot-one man with brown skin, nothing interesting about him, probably dreadlocks his hair, who when he spoke, spoke in such a way that people had never heard it before. This is a man who speaks with authority. Why? Because he is the authority. Everybody remember what John said about him as he passed by? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You think that's got Old Testament roots in it? You bet your sweet bippy it does. And here he is. John introducing him. He's the Word in the flesh. And we saw His glory. It's the same glory that left Israel. It has returned to Israel. And it's got something to say. And people, we better pay attention to what God has to tell us this time. He's no longer sending prophets. He's now sending His Son. By way of application, what goes on in our lives right now that keeps us from fellowship with God? When I sit here and look throughout my week, do I identify anything that goes on that if I let it fester to the uttermost would probably plant me in Ezekiel chapter 8? Is there anything that you worship other than Him? Don't act like you don't. Just because we're not carving it with our hands doesn't mean we're bowing with our faces. Do you need a reintroduction to God? Do you need a reintroduction to the Savior? I can't answer that for you. Only you can. But I tell you this, the way is open. The way is fully and freely open because God made sure it would be. I don't normally do this, but I will. You may be here today and you don't know Jesus. And I'm not going to tell you that that's okay because it's not. Because if that's the case, and if your life were over in a second, you would be separated from Him forever. When I read the Jews, my sin is not much different. It's just better concealed. And when somebody finds that one out, I'll grab another sin that's way easier to hide. Why is that? Because I'm wicked and I'm crooked. And apart from Him, I'm nothing. So what needs to happen? If you're a believer in Christ, confession of that sin needs to happen. Why? It restores fellowship. But if you do not believe in Christ, today is the day of your salvation. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh who lived a perfect life, completely abided by the law of God, therefore making Him a qualified candidate of righteousness and upholding perfect righteousness. And He died because we cannot stop from lying or gossiping. Simple, simple sins, right? Little, little white sins like that that we don't think much of. God loves you so much, He gave Christ. And I love it. Whoever believes, are you convinced that it's true? Whoever believes in Him will not perish. You don't have to be separated from Him. You have everlasting life. It took me four years of being a Christian to realize that the word everlasting meant forever. That was a joyous day. Man, Never to be lost again. Do you know Him? Have you believed in Him? If you know Him, do you have a fellowship problem with Him? 
because it's scary to see in the Word. I've talked a long time. Let's pray. God, thank You for our time together. How frightening it is to think that Your presence vacated from the midst of Your people as a form of judgment against them. But how beautiful it is to see the hope of Jesus Christ reintroduced into society, reintroduced into the Jewish people. Where Zedekiah was not proficient in holding the crown, he was told to remove it until the time of the one to come. Thank you, God, that you have sent Jesus, the hope of the world, who's paid for the sins of the world, who offers eternal life full and free. We've covered a lot of material today to get to this transition into the New Testament. Father, help us to realize our hearts could be led astray. We could know a lot about you and not be in fellowship with you. So, Father, if that's the case, convict our hearts by the Word, through the Holy Spirit, that we would restore that intimacy with you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.